Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one truthful page of Talmud each day. And in today's pages, Bavakama 64 and 65, we find an idea that couldn't be more timely. Have a listen. Rabbi Hanina teaches a baraita in support of Rav in the case of a homeowner acting as a bailey who falsely stated the claim that a thief stole the deposit and subsequently took an oath as to the truth of his claim and then admitted that he was lying and that he, in fact, took the item himself. And at some point, witnesses came and testified that the bailey himself had the item. If he admitted his guilt before the witnesses came and testified, he pays the principal and an additional one-fifth, and he must also bring a guilt offering. But if he admitted his guilt after witnesses came and testified, he pays the double payment and brings a guilt offering, and his additional one-fifth is covered by his double payment that he pays. This is the statement of Abiyakov. Put bluntly, the idea here is this. Say someone gives you something to safe keep, and you kind of like that something. You covet it. So you say, hey, man, sorry, but um, a thief or someone came by and stole your thing. A bit of bad luck there. If you admit the wrongdoing right away, you basically just pay the principal, meaning the value of what you stole. But if witnesses come filing in and only then you tell the truth, well, now you pay a hefty fine worth double the stolen item's worth. Now, why is that? Should it just be the same? You admitted it after all. Does it matter that one case involves admitting it before witnesses came and the other after the witnesses came? What's the difference between A and B? And why does one situation involve such a hefty fine while the other doesn't? Because the rabbis teach us. The person who admitted the wrongdoing right away was being truthful, was being honest. The person who only confessed once witnesses to his perfidy arrived on the scene and testified to his wrongdoing, that person wasn't just guilty of thievery, but also of lying, of spreading fake news. He stole and he lied. And spreading malicious lies is its own category of bad, bad, bad behavior. Sadly, these days there's a lot of lying going around. And often these lies grow into large and malicious conspiracy theories that shape the way so many people see the world and alas, Jews in particular. So because it's Friday, we want to give you a special treat. This one's a bit longer than usual. It's an interview Stephanie Butnick and Joshua Molina, my co-hosts on the Unorthodox podcast, conducted a while back with Mike Rothschild. He's a journalist and a conspiracy theory expert, and his new book is called, could it be anything else? Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. We've never aired this interview, but it fits today's page so perfectly. Rothschild discusses a few of the most persistent conspiracy theories involving the Jews and why they remain so popular even when they're so, so, so easy to debunk. Have a listen. Mike Rothschild, welcome back to Unorthodox. Thank you for having me back. It's really fun to have you back because when you were first on the show, you were doing a lot of reporting on QAnon. 
And the reason I actually wanted you on the show, I think I'd heard you on an episode of Reply All. Mm-hmm. And I was like, there's a guy named Rothschild reporting <laughs> on QAnon? Yeah. <laughs> this has to come up all the time. So we brought you on our show and we were like, hey, big Jew, Mike Rothschild, what is it like being in these underworlds of conspiracy? And you were like, yeah, no, it all comes back to the Jews. And so I, I guess it's especially good to see you back here with your new book, Jewish Space Lasers, <laughs> The Rothschilds and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories. How did you decide to go like right to the source on all of this? Well, I dealt with the Rothschild conspiracy theory researcher thing for quite a while. And <laughs> the thing I always got was, oh, of course, a Rothschild would say that, oh, you're just covering for your family. And then I would get <laughs> other people who would go, oh, no, he only took the name to pretend to be part of the Rothschilds. He's a fake. He's really a Soros. He's really a Soros, a Soros Clinton, a very unfortunate hyphenate. Uh, <laughs> But at some point, it just kind of dawned on me to figure out, okay, I get this over and over and over, and everybody knows this name, but why do we know this name? Who are these people? Why are they linked to all of these conspiracy theories? What is the truth and what is not the truth? And what do they have to say about it? And of course, the what do they have to say about it aspect was the thing that I immediately ran into a roadblock because what they have to say about it is nothing. They don't talk about this stuff. So it really felt to me to kind of piece together the historical record from outside. And what I really wanted to do is determine, are we correct in linking this family to unimaginable wealth and power? Or is this just a myth that has gotten repeated and recycled and added onto over and over and over? And as it turns out, the answer really is all of those. Could you tell us, like, I actually don't know much about the Rothschilds. I know that, like, they mean a lot to anti-Semites. They seem vaguely important in the world of, like, banking. And I think Nikki Hilton married a Rothschild. And can yes. I ask you, Can I ask you first and foremost, are you familiar with The Rothschilds, the musical that my father co-produced in the early 70s by Bach and Harnick, who gave us Fiddler on the Roof? I am absolutely familiar with it. I listened to it and wrote about it as part of the book. And I had no idea that your father co-produced it. That's amazing. Shout out Robert Molina. It's no Fiddler. I will, I will say yes, that. Yes, I think that was the quote on the marquee, <laughs> which did not sell a lot of tickets. Come see the Rothschilds. It's no fiddler. Doesn't move a lot of units. Uh, <laughs> quote, it's not as good as the last one. I definitely write about the musical and the, you know, the Rothschilds' impact in popular culture. But so the, the elevator pitch on the Rothschild family itself is that they grew out of the Frankfurt Jewish ghetto in the late 1700s. The Frankfurt Jewish ghetto, literally the Judengasse, the Jewish city, was just that, a walled ghetto in Frankfurt populated by, I think, around 3,000 Jews with very, very strict rules about who they were allowed to do business with, when they were allowed to leave, what they could wear, what they could say. Mayor Amschel Rothschild was the next in a line of a growing wealthy family of coin dealers, metal collectors, uh, M-E-D-A-L, not metal, and money changers. And of course, they were part of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire had hundreds of different currencies. Somebody had to exchange one currency for another currency, make a small profit off it, and of course that was the Jews. So Mayer was part of this family that was very modestly wealthy. They were starting to make their way in the world. Mayer became the court Jew to the crown prince of Hesse, who was the, the son of the ruler of this principality. And he starts to move up in the world. He starts to have the responsibility for more and more of the leader's wealth. 
And by this point, Mayer starts to have children. He has five sons and five daughters. And his oldest son, Amschel, becomes involved in the business. Some of his other sons eventually start going to the other financial capitals of Europe. And then in the early 1800s, the Napoleonic Wars break out. The Rothschilds find themselves in a position to hide and invest the very large fortune of the Elector of Hesse. He's one of the principalities who helps elect the Holy Roman Emperor. So the Rothschilds have this this task to keep this money away from the French, and they make a huge amount of money investing this. Over the next few years, they start to smuggle gold from England to France Mm. in order to fund Wellington's effort against Napoleon. At this point, one of Mayer's sons, Nathan, is uh, well-established in London. So there's smuggling going on back and forth. This gold is being lent out at interest. The Rothschilds are basically helping keep the war effort against Napoleon afloat. And over those couple of decades, the first couple of decades of the 1800s, the Rothschilds become incredibly wealthy. They've got branches now in Vienna, Naples, Paris. They are the preeminent Jewish power in Europe. And it happens fairly quickly, really over about one generation. And is there any uh, anti-Semitism going their way early on as they accrue such great wealth? There's the kind of the ever-present anti-Semitism of being wealthy and Jewish in Europe, but a lot of the growing portrayals of the Rothschild family, particularly Mayer and Nathan in London, are uh, a little genial. They're kind of poking fun at them a little bit. You get these cartoons that sort of show them spinning loans and you know doing stuff in the London Stock Exchange. It's not the overt conspiracy theorizing that you will get later on, but that tone of kind of Envy mixed with hate, mixed with fear, is already starting to be there, but it doesn't really take hold until about the middle of the 1800s. So what happens then? And I know we're giving away a lot of what's in the book, but I think our- Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, (laughs) anti-Semitism. Tell us when the weather stuff starts. The, the, the weather stuff's a little bit later, but the turning of the tide about the Rothschilds really happens in 1846. And it happens in the summer in Paris. And a pamphlet appears under the nom de plume Satan, accusing the Rothschild family. And by this time, Mayer has died. And actually, Nathan has also died. Nathan dies in 1836. And he's the richest man in the world at that time. In 1846, about 10 years later, a pamphlet appears written in French anonymously by somebody calling themselves Satan that makes two accusations. The first is that James de Rothschild, who's uh, another one of the sons of Mayer, was responsible for a train crash that took place outside Paris a few months earlier where something like 15 to 20 people died. And uh, there was all this press coverage, very graphic and how it covered the, the carnage that happened to all of these people. And this pamphlet accuses James of sacrificing Gentile lives to make more money and that his railroads are cheap and, and poorly maintained and that he doesn't care what happens to the French and their pristine forests. The other part of the accusation is that Nathan Rothschild manipulated the news of the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo to essentially take control of the British money system. The story goes that Nathan is at the Battle of Waterloo. This is in 1815 in, in June, the, you know, the fight between Napoleon on one side and Wellington on the other. And the story is that Nathan is at the Battle of Waterloo. 
and he's watching it happen. He's so close that he can smell the smoke. He can see the anguish on the faces of the wounded Frenchman, who, of course, he refuses to help because he's a coward. And seeing that Napoleon is about to lose, he takes to the stirrup, rides at midnight across Europe to the Belgian port of Ostend, takes a clipper ship across the English Channel during a once-in-a-century storm, having to bribe a terrified sailor to do so. He gets to the London Stock Exchange. He's exhausted. He slumps against his favorite column in the Stock Exchange, and he looks defeated. And the other English stockbrokers say, Rothschild knows what happens. England is lost. All is lost. And they start selling off all their stock. But of course, Nathan knows what really happened. So he's sending hand signals to all of his devious agents who go and buy up all of the depressed stock. Then the news comes that the British actually won and Napoleon lost. That stock shoots up in value and Nathan is suddenly the richest man in England. This, this was the story told by this pamphlet. None of this happened. Th this is not at all how any of this took place. In the book, you call this the Rothschild myth to end all myths. Yes, it is really the one that kind of kickstarts this conspiracy theory industry about them. And this is recycled over and over and over. It winds up in some form in some of the biggest legitimate Rothschild biographies. It winds up in Nazi propaganda films. Alex Jones goes on and on about it in some of his anti-capitalist movies. This is the myth that Nathan Rothschild either manipulated the outcome or knew the outcome and made some gigantic amount of money off it. But this really starts the Rothschild myth industry right there in this tiny little forgotten pamphlet. It's so interesting because it feels like in many ways Rothschild is a stand-in for Jews. You know, until reading your book, I didn't understand the thing about wars because I feel like there's this idea that Jews profit from war in a way. Like I've seen right. that in sort of some of the darker anti-Semitic stuff of, of late. And it seems to be going back to like this, this one primary origin myth. Right. Right. And very often what would happen is that sometimes two countries or two empires that had Rothschild interests would go to war. But it wasn't the family sort of manipulating these sides against each other. One of the things I've heard a lot is, well, the Rothschilds were funding both sides of the Napoleonic Wars. They were funding both Napoleon and the opposition. They were never funding Napoleon. Napoleon was terrible for them. They were absolutely funding his opposition. You go back even further than that, there's rumors that the Rothschilds were funding both the British and the Americans during the American Revolution. Again, it, not at all true, but there's a nugget of history there in that the Hessian mercenaries, who are specifically named as one of the grievances in the Declaration of Independence, were being sold by the Elector of Hesse, whose court Jew was Mayor Amschel Rothschild. But Mayer had nothing to do with that particular bit of business. It's just a coincidence. But this idea that the Rothschilds are funding both sides of every war is recycled over and over and over again to the point where if there is a conflict going on and there is some sort of human misery, it becomes extremely easy to blame not just the Jews in general, but this particular family specifically. So this is like a new one. This wasn't like way back when there was a storm. This was like, I mean, the Weather Channel is in our vintage. Right. It's, it's our generation. This is a fairly new one, but it's very easy to take an old world family like the Rothschilds and connect them to cutting edge things that are happening right now, whether it's COVID-19, whether it's what's going on in Ukraine, whether it's any news event, you can connect the Rothschilds to it because, well, they're bad. So why aren't they doing this bad thing? 
Do you have a sense of why conspiracy theorists seem, even if they don't start there, to work their way, if not to the Rothschilds, then to Jews altogether? Yeah, it's. I think it's really sort of brand recognition. Right. <laughs> I think a lot of these people are so used to blaming Jews for everything that you fall back on it just out of reflex because it's easy. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of work sure. to look at something that's going on in the world and say, yep, Jews, you know, they've done all of these other things. They've been doing it for thousands of years. What's one more thing? You know, you if you were going to blame, you know, Zoroastrians or Albanians for... Yeah, why start from scratch when you've got a good head start? <laughs> right, why start from scratch? A lot of these conspiracy content creators are both extremely prolific, but also really lazy. So they're going to do the thing that requires the least amount of work and will let them recycle the most content from the last cycle of conspiracy theories. Do you think at the creation level, anybody believes what they're writing? I think that you come to believe it. And, you know, I run into this a lot with somebody like Alex Jones, where people go, he can't possibly believe that stuff. Or you run into it with the QAnon promoters, where you go, oh, they can't possibly be that crazy. I think you convince yourself that it's real. The more you write about it, the more you monetize it, the more you say, well, yeah, why isn't it real? Some part of it is, because if you are really, if you're really faking it, if it's just a con, if it's just an act, people are going to figure it out. The people who really buy into this stuff, they're very gullible, and they are usually but not always uneducated, but they're not stupid. And they can be very savvy when they feel like somebody is trying to manipulate them in a really overt, obvious way. And of course, when I listen to somebody like Alex Jones, all I hear is the fake. All right. I hear is the, he doesn't believe this at all. This is a character he's playing but if this is your world, and this is where you get your news, and this is how you form your opinions, you're going to put aside any red flags because you want so badly for it to be real. So what do the Rothschilds feel today about this? I mean, it must be just, it's such a big weight to bear, I imagine. It means enormous success, inherited success on the one hand, and also just international. I could bear that weight. <laughs> <laughs> I feel. So, you know, very early on in the process, I started uh, reaching out to some of the Rothschilds whose contact information I could find. And some of them, I never heard anything. And then a few of them, I basically heard, it's a good idea and I don't want any part of it. <laughs> so I think that they've carried this weight for so long that they are very good at it. And one of the people who's connected with the family, the head of their archive in London, told me that the reason why the family doesn't talk about it is it would force them to prove a negative. Right. It would force them to prove that these stories are not true, that they don't have $500 trillion. They don't manipulate the weather. They don't own all the central banks. And of course, it's really hard to prove to somebody who wants to believe that you have $500 trillion that you don't. So their stance is basically to say nothing about it. And really the only time I've seen one of the Rothschilds try to address it, and I write about this in the book, is David de Rothschild somehow ending up doing an interview with InfoWars. Oh, uh, and it is it is an absolute train wreck. Very uncomfortable wow. to listen to. Train wreck. <laughs> they profited. That's right. What's your take as an expert on conspiracy theories? Does debunking them or attempting to do so, is that just a waste of time? Or, do, or does one have to do that, hoping that somebody's listening and is open to facts? I definitely think that for the family, trying to debunk any of this stuff would be a waste of time. 
we've seen many times that the subjects of conspiracy theories trying to shoot down those theories absolutely only adds fuel to the fire. You know, we saw that with uh, Barack Obama and his birth certificate. Every time he would try to address it, it would just inflame the people spreading the rumors. That doesn't mean he was wrong to do it, and I understand why he did it, but it, it never helped. George Soros will do the same thing. He will address some of the rumors about him. No one is listening to George Soros who believes that he is a worldwide puppet master. No one's going to care what he has to say about right. it because, of course, he's going to lie. But I do think that there is a place for debunking. I think there is a place for picking apart these myths, examining what's real, what's not real, where it comes from, what kind of impact it has. Because you're not going to reach the hardcore anti-Semite. You're not going to reach the hardcore conspiracy believer. But you will reach the person who has heard the name Rothschild but doesn't really know anything about it. I had a conversation last year with someone in D.C., I was there to testify to Congress about election fraud misinformation. And I started talking to somebody and I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm working on this book about the Rothschilds. And he's like, so do the Rothschilds really own all the central banks? And I'm like, no, the Rothschilds do not own all the central banks. And this is like a well-informed, well-intentioned person. Well-informed, liberal, democratic voting person who has just heard this nonsense and maybe doesn't believe it, but doesn't know why it's not true. So that's really the audience I'm going for with a book like this. Yeah, it's heartening. That's very heartening to hear that that there are hearts and minds open to learning. Yeah, there are. Most people don't want to be anti-Semitic and would be very embarrassed to be spreading something like the Rothschilds funded every war since 1776. Most people don't want to be perceived that way. So I'm happy to put the information out there that will help people say the right things, share the right things, and understand what all of these things mean. Does doing this kind of work bring you your share of senseless hatred and whatnot, anti-Semitism? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, uh, you know, the, of course, a Rothschild would say that, um, <laughs> you know, all of the conspiracy theories get thrown at me. What's funny is at the beginning of July, I went on CNN to talk about the anti-human trafficking movie Sound of Freedom. Right. And didn't even really make any kind of commentary on the movie itself, but just talked about how so much of what we think about trafficking is moral panic and based on bogus and out-of-context statistics. The volume of insanity that was directed at me lasted for weeks. I was talked about on Fox News. I was talked about on Steve Bannon's podcast. I was talked about on Alex Jones. It was like a lot. You know, I didn't have any physical danger, but it was definitely like a fire hose of crazy that I had to purposefully look away from. Otherwise, it was going to completely consume my day dealing with all of this stuff. And of course, I made the decision to ignore it because what else am I going to say to these people? I can't convince them that I'm not whatever they think I am. So just say nothing. And I sort of get where the Rothschilds are coming from. Right. That's what a Rothschild would say. You know, mm -hmm. it's funny because the book is called Jewish Space Lasers. The cover is like menorahs shooting laser beams. That's obviously a riff on the Marjorie Taylor Greene thing about space lasers. Right. But there is this flip side of it that is really dark and really scary. And so some people who hold these beliefs then go on to do very bad things. How do you manage that? I mean, are you def purposely deflecting with laser beam shooting menorahs? Like, are you trying to find <laughs> that going in with humor and levity? Is that the way to do it? I mean, do people know where you live? Like, your background's blurred. Is that so we don't know where you are? Oh, no, no. That's just because my, my house is not the tidiest. <laughs> you know, I am very cagey about where I live and all that stuff. Like, I don't talk about my family and, and things like that, mostly because it's not 
really anybody's business. Well, who, who would care? I've never felt unsafe. I definitely understand that even while I, I wade into this world, I know that as a white guy, my volume of hate directed toward me is always going to be less than any woman or any person of color in any kind of public-facing field. So I definitely understand that I have a, a privilege inherent just in that. But yeah, I definitely take care of my own information. I take care of my mental health. You know, writing a book like this and covering the stuff that I cover, I really have to treat it like a job. You know, I clock in in the morning, do my work, and then I clock out at night and I'm not obsessing over it. And I'm not trying to save every single heart and mind of every single person out there who is afflicted with these beliefs. That's impossible. All I can do is understand it myself and try to transmit it to people who might be open to it. And you know, in terms of the approach to the book, you know, the title of the book and the cover of the book, very early on, I knew that I didn't want to write another very stuffy biography of the Rothschilds. I didn't want it to be, you know, here's 200 years of, of anti-Semitism and misery and pain. I wanted this to be a little lighter, leaning into how weird a lot of this stuff is and how bizarre a lot of these personalities are, because I think there are ways to tell the story of how the Jews have been persecuted without falling back on the same things that we are always talking about. And I, and I really wanted to make an attempt to do that with this book. So the last question, I think, goes without saying, how much are the Rothschilds paying you <laughs> to write this book? <laughs> uh, not enough. Yeah, I had no contact with anybody in the family. Not positive, not negative. They just don't wade into it. And, and I get it now, yeah, having, having written about them and, and kind of spent a year looking at some of the stuff that is said about them. Like, I wouldn't want to address it. How do you convince people who hate you not to hate you? And that's pretty hard to do. I also feel like with this book, the way the cover looks, like, you could probably trick an anti-Semite into buying it. Yes. Like, you could read Jewish Space Lasers, The Rothschilds, and uh, 200 Years of like Conspiracy God, we Theories. Got, we yeah. got them now. <laughs> yeah, so I think you're doing, I love that you're targeting both demographics. Yes. And I think that that will be really, I mean, I can only hope that that does amazing things for your sales. Me too, me too. Mike Rothschild, thank you for being our favorite Rothschild and for all your work. Well, thank you, <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate that very much. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you are really going to love the new book just published by me. It's called How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. You can order it now at your local bookstore or directly from the publisher through the link in this here podcast description or through that big online store whose logo is, you know, a smile. As always, please go rate and review Take One on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You could get your Take One t-shirts and mugs and other swag at tabletstudios.com and you could subscribe to our weekly newsletter at tabletm.ag slash take one newsletter. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic. Talmudic.